All right, I can't say that I am too mature. If you know me, you probably know that's the case already. But I do have one sign that I am obviously getting older. All right, there are some signs that, that you go through life and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm officially getting older, okay? I've, I've gotten married, I've gotten the degrees, I've got the kid, I'm getting older, I'm starting to get some gray hairs, but really the other day I really, really realized I, I'm, I'm actually getting older. And that indication was when I decided officially I like HDTV. I, I, I like HGTV, and, and my whole life I have hated this channel. Uh, I, my, my mother loved it, and, and so many different women love it for, for all the Joanna Gaines reasons out there, and, and I, I just couldn't get it. But the other day, I got it. And that was a moment for me where I was like, okay, I, I'm officially getting older, I, because found this show called Hometown. Anybody ever see Hometown? All right, this is a guy that I can understand, okay? Big dude named Ben. I'm in. All right, little small girl named Aaron. That's not Jensie's name, but little small girl. I get it. Decorator, I get it. I loved it. I fell in love. I love the show Hometown, and, and I, I will say, Jensie, don't get too excited. I'm not ready for HGTV to be the background of my life. But if Hometown is on, I will definitely partake in the show Hometown. If you haven't seen Hometown, it's, it's, it's this couple that they live in, in this, you know, everybody knows everybody type of town, you know. Y'all come back now, you type of town where everybody's drinking out of mason jars and, you know, everybody went to school with your mama and all that. It's called Laurel, Mississippi, if you haven't known this. And slowly but surely, they are trying to revitalize, they are trying to renovate, they are trying to restore their hometown, one house at a time. And what's amazing about this show, and, and a lot of shows on HGTV, is they will take a house that looks like this. Now, this is actually one of the good ones before I even get going here. But they will take some houses, I, I couldn't find some examples, of some of the worst houses, but that some of these houses that they decide to, to, to go out and this is the house we're going to try to sell this, 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 this couple. Some of the houses, the, the roof is just caved in, right? Uh, the, the foundation is obviously off and, and the whole house is just sitting crooked and, and the, 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 the kudzu and the vines are, are growing all over the house and and it looks like it's been haunted for a hundred years and all the windows are busted out. I mean, it's an absolute dog of a house, right? And they take that kind of house and they, and they turn it into this, uh, a much more appealing house. And, and they add the gables and they add the door and they color the door and they get all the landscaping. And, it, and the inside just looks so flawless. And they take what was once a dog of a house and they restore it and revitalize it into something like this. And at this point, this show, they, they, they have already restored about a hundred homes in their community. A hundred homes that many people wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. 
Because any of us looks at one of these houses and we're going to run, right? Especially if you're a buyer. We're going to run away from such a house as far away as we can. But Ben and Aaron, they look at that house and they see potential. In fact, some of the houses that we would look at and level, they see potential. And it's because of the potential that they believe in, they have this glimmer of a vision of what this house could be, that they take the time to restore the house to what it should be. And along the way, it's a very frustrating process for them. They'll rip up the carpet, and oh boy, there's no floor, or whatever the case might be. And the, 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 they'll rip out the walls, and there's the termites. And, and there's a, it's a very frustrating process to restore and to renovate these houses. But at the end, every episode is the same. The reward for that restoration, the, the reward for that renovation is clearly seen on the owner's face when they see that house for the first time. Tears are streaming down their face. They're jumping up and down. They can't believe this amazing job that Ben and Aaron have done. And tonight, in our study of the restoration movement, we continue what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in our last time together. A couple of weeks ago, I want to thank Kyle for... Uh, Stepping in last week, I was at Freed Hardeman Lectures, and he did a wonderful job. Tonight, we're going to continue in on, on what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Last time we were together, we talked about two things that keep the restoration from continuing in our lives. We talked about two things that, that keep the restoration movement from continuing with you and me. We talked about two things that take the restoration movement and, and turn it into the stagnation movement. Things that, that stagnate this, this thing that is supposed to be continually happening in our lives. And last time we were together, we saw how easy it is for tradition to stagnate the restoration movement. We saw how easy it is to allow tradition to keep us from continuing the restoration process. Because as we talked about, the temptation is to think, well, I mean, this is how we've always done it. We start to think to ourselves, this is how we've always handled this. This is how we've always thought about this. This is how mama did it, and this is how daddy did it, and so it's good enough for me too, right? And last time we also talked about how hard it is to not let comparison to enter into our lives. We talked about how comparison keeps us from continuing the movement and the restoration process because the temptation is the same with comparison as it is with tradition because we start to convince ourselves, well, well we start to compare ourselves to churches down the road and, and churches down across that, uh, across that part of town and, and churches down in that county and churches over in this state and, and we start to compare ourselves and we say things like this, well, we aren't as bad as they are. We start to tell ourselves, well, we, we haven't gone off as, as far as, as they have. And we start to compare ourselves and we say, well, we, haven't, we aren't as far gone as they are. So let's just focus on what they're doing instead of 
what we have done. Have you heard what they're up to over there? Have you heard what's going on at... You fill in the blank. We've all had conversations like this before, and it's just deflecting the focus off of what we need to be focused on as a congregation at Buford Church of Christ. And what we saw last time is, is both of these, when it comes to tradition and comparison, both of them lead to the same result, right? We saw last time that Jesus calls both of these types of people hypocrites. He called the Pharisees hypocrites when they were so obsessed and so, so possessed by their traditions. He calls them hypocrites because they focused on their traditions and, and they placed their traditions in the detriment to what God's will was. But it, we also saw that, that Jesus calls those who focus on comparing and focus on comparison, he calls them hypocrites too because you're not focused on the plank that is in your own eye, you're focused on the speck that's in someone else's eye. Tradition and comparison, they, they play such a huge role in stagnating the restoration plea, stagnating the restoration process and the restoration movement that we are supposed to be continuing. However, tonight, I want to talk about two more things. I want to talk about two more things that, that stagnate the restoration process. Two more things that do much of the same as tradition and comparison. Two more things that keep us from being the church that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 27. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27, the theme verse for our class, Paul says, we've read, it, we've read it many times, but Paul says about the church, he says that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's what God intended for his church to be. And we talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about uh, tradition and comparison. We, 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 we read this verse and we said, well, there's just no way, there's no possible way that we could ever measure up to such an ideal as this verse. There's no way we could ever become without spot or wrinkle. There's no way we could ever be without blemish. And even though we talked about a little bit last time together, tonight our very first point is, is clearly in the context of this verse. The very first thing we're going to be talking about tonight is, is something that, that this verse makes people do. One of our hindrances to the restoration we're talking tonight, one of the obstacles that stagnate the movement is directly tied to this passage. So we look at this passage and we see what Paul says about what the church is supposed to be and we know that this is the destination for the restoration. We've talked about that multiple times. We read that and we know there's no way we could ever measure up to it. And so what do we do? What do we do sometimes? What do we see congregations do sometimes is they let themselves off the hook. They let themselves off the hook from ever even trying to endeavor to become this verse. 
because we see this verse and we see such a massive expectation for the church to be holy and the church to be glorious. And then we look at ourselves and we see nothing but unholiness. And we see nothing but blemishes. And we see nothing but spots and wrinkles and all of these different things. And we see how imperfect and how, how flawed that we really are. And that we're always going to have a couple of spots and a couple of wrinkles and a couple of blemishes. And, and we accept a defeatist mentality. The third thing that keeps us from restoring the church that God intended is this idea of defeatism. Defeatism. Instead of seeing this verse in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 as, as this divine challenge to, to constantly endeavor to be the church that God intended, instead of, instead of taking that challenge before us to, to everlastingly try to meet that standard, instead of aspiring to become that church, sometimes it's hard for us not to throw in the towel give up before we even start. So what does this mean, defeatism? This isn't a bushism. This is a real word. A real word that, that has a real meaning and a real application, I think, to our lives. And defeatism is, in fact, one of the greatest hindrances to the restoration process and why it is not continued in our lives. Defeatism is an attitude of accepting expecting or being resigned to defeat. When, when, when you are a defeatist, when, when you believe in defeatism, you, you have already lost before you even start. It's a pessimistic outlook on life. A pessimistic outlook on the church and on Christianity. And when you just look at this definition, when it comes to the church... Some have resigned to the fact that our pursuit of becoming the church that God intended for us to be is a loss. There's no way that we can be that church. There's no way that, that we can be holy and without blemish like Paul talks about. And so because they, they have this mentality, they have convinced themselves that, that it is okay to accept even to expect defeat in this noble goal that we have of restoring the church because, because they've already accepted defeat. They're definitely not going to find success, right? You ever know someone to set a goal for themselves and before they even set out to do it, they, they were talking about how they wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> well, Here's your sign, right? No, you're not going to be able to do it because before you even started, you were saying you weren't going to do it. You're already excusing yourself for the failure that you know is coming at one point or another. And some do that with the church. You know, what does God's Word have to say about defeatism? What, what does God's Word have to say about this mentality? Is, is this mentality acceptable as children of God? Well, let's dive into God's Word and see. Let's just say this. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious 
up front before we get going that God gave a perfect church to an imperfect people, right? God gave this, this perfect institution to a very imperfect people. And because of that, it is true that we cannot be perfect outside of the grace of God. Because we are going to sin, we are going to fail, and we are going to come up short. That's the nature of what it means to be human. And that's what makes Christ so different. It is true that, that if, if we're even going to think about getting to heaven, it's got to get there with God's grace. God's grace is the only reason any of us are going to get to heaven, but does that mean that we should continue in sin, that grace may abound? Paul asked that question. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We often go to verses 3 and 4. Talks about baptism, talks about how we're buried with Christ in baptism, talks about how we're raised to walk in newness of life. But what does what verses 1 and 2 say? What's the context of that? Well, let's look. Verses 1 and 2. Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? What is Paul talking about here? I think Paul is talking about this defeatist mentality. He's talking about this mentality that, that says, there's no way I can be perfect. And so he's confronting it. He's confronting a defeatist mentality, and this mentality says, I can't be perfect, so I might as well live it up. Right? In fact, a lot of people in the church at Rome felt that way. They felt that way about their lives and about their walk with God that because I can't be perfect, well, then I might as well live it up. I might as well sin even more. I might as well sin e even more each and every day because the more I mess up, the more I sin, the greater God's grace looks. Right? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 6. It's this idea that, that if I continue to sin, then that just makes God look better. What an excuse, right? What an excuse. But that's what the church in Rome was dealing with. That's what Paul talks about. It's, it, it doesn't make the grace of God look better. It, looks God's, it makes God's children look worse to the world and to everyone who's looking at God's children for an example. There were many in the church in Rome who had resigned to the fact that they were defeated. And so they told themselves, I may as well sin all the more. If, if at nothing more, at nothing less, it's going to make God look better when in actuality we know that that's not how grace works. That's not how grace looks. That's not how the Christian life works. What does your translation say? We're, let's, I, I, I've got certainly not. Romans chapter 6 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. That's the New King James Version. Other translations say, may it never be. Another translation says, by no means. 
Another translation says, God forbid. What Paul's saying, whatever translation you have, the same message that, no, this isn't how grace works. This isn't how, how the, the walk with Christ is supposed to be, that, that we just give up and, and, and throw in the towel and just sin all the more. And so what we're talking about when we're talking about spots and we're talking about blemishes and we're talking about wrinkles when it comes to the church is sin. It's not meeting the standard. It's coming up short. And so we look at this verse and we talk about Ephesians chapter 5 and we say there's no way we can ever do that. Well, when we say that, we're saying, well, we might as well continue in sin that grace may abound. Paul says, certainly not. May it never be, God forbid, that Christians have this attitude. Paul goes on to talk about how can we say that we've been freed from sin? How can we say that, that, that we've been freed from the bondage of sin if, if we're still in slavery to sin? If we're still in slavery to sin, there's no way we can claim not to be in bondage to it, yet that is what many do today. That's what many in the church in Rome were doing. He says, how, how can we continue in sin if, if we're supposed to be dead to it? This is the defeatist attitude. Skip ahead to verse 14. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 6, Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law but under grace. You know, some people look at that verse and they say, I'm not under the law. It's a free-for-all. I can do whatever I want because I'm under grace. A lot of people have that attitude about grace. A lot of people have that attitude about the Old and the New Testament and, and how the Old Testament was so meritorious and how the Old Testament was, was about how you could, you could live out a perfect you know, salvation in and of yourself, off your own merit. And so when we get to the New Testament, it's all about the law of liberty and the law of grace. And so we can do whatever we want because God is a graceful God. He's a merciful God. And we can, we, we, we can do whatever we want, say whatever we want, practice whatever we want. Is that what you see in Romans chapter 6? Is that what you see in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14? He says, sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law but under grace. It's almost like he says the exact opposite, doesn't he? The, 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 the exact opposite is what Paul expects from the church. Is that you should be more dedicated to living faithfully in a law of grace than you, are, than you were with the law of Moses. Paul is saying Grace shouldn't make you more okay with sin. It, it should make you less okay with sin. It should make you want to be even that much more faithful to God. Not the other way around. You ever, do, you, do you remember when you were baptized? I was nine years old. I knew the steps of salvation. I knew that I was lost. I... I knew exactly what I needed to do to be saved. I knew what I needed to do uh, to have my sins washed away. And, and I even knew the commitment because I had a, a family before me that, 
that showed me that being a Christian is a decision for the rest of your life. And so I've, I've never one single time questioned my salvation, or at least my baptism. But I, I do remember one thing about when I was nine, and I had just been baptized. I thought that I could be perfect. I thought that, that after I was baptized, that that meant I would never sin again. That, that I, I, I love God so much, and I love Jesus so much, that, that I would never, ever sin again. And I, I, had, I had resolved within myself, and, and I had made up my mind that, that I would never sin again. Because I had become a Christian. That meant I had put all of that away, right? And so as a nine-year-old kid, I, I tried my hardest, I tried my best, as, as long as I possibly could, to, to not sin. How many times over the next month did I hear my mom tell me to do something and I didn't want to do it, but I was like, i, I got to do it because I, I, I can't sin. How many times did my brother mess with me or do whatever and I, and I wanted to get him back and I said, oh, I, I can't do that because I, I, I don't want to sin. But as hard as I tried, it didn't take long for me to start disobeying my parents. As hard as I possibly tried, it, it didn't take long for me to start lying about who broke that thing, <laughs> right? It didn't take long for me to start fighting with my brothers and, and talking back to my parents, and it didn't take long for me to realize how impossible it is to be perfect, even as an innocent nine-year-old. It didn't take long for me to realize it's impossible to be perfect. That's the whole point of Christianity, is that we can't. We can't be perfect. But you know what it didn't make me do? It didn't make me just throw in the towel altogether. It didn't make me just say, well, I, I can't be perfect, so I, I might as well quit this whole thing. I might as well give up on the whole thing because I, I can't be perfect. I, I can't measure up to the fullness of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? So I might as well give up and throw in the towel altogether. Instead, it, it was a reminder that I just needed to grow. That, that, that I needed to grow in, in my faith, in my knowledge, in my walk with God. You know what's very sad? is there are a lot of adults who, who don't act that way. In fact, I think the older you get, the, the harder it is for you to accept your failure. Because you know better. You've studied better. You, you, you've seen what sin does to certain people in your life, and you're supposed to learn from that kind of stuff. And so I, I've, I've, I've seen many different people that have come back to the Lord after so many different years of being astray. And they get so close, so close to leaving that world behind them. So close to leaving that life of sin behind. And it's almost like they can't take it. 
they can't take the idea of, of truly being forgiven. And so they fall right back into what they were doing. Instead of, of picking themselves up and, and, and getting right again after they, after they slip up that time, what do they do? They resign to defeat. They have a defeatist mentality. But there's no way they can be perfect, so why try? You know, Paul tells us all throughout his epistles, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? He says that multiple times throughout his epistles that he, he was telling his followers, I am imitating Christ with every second, every fiber of my being, every, every moment of my life is imitating Christ. Imitate me. Jesus isn't, isn't, isn't here anymore for you to witness and watch, so, so watch me because I am doing everything I can to imitate Christ. So let's see what he did. Let's see what Paul did when it came to his failure. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if any one of you think otherwise, God reveal even this to you. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, I haven't mastered all of this. I haven't got all of this figured out. I'm right there with you trying to figure out this walk with Christ just like you are. I am not perfect. I have not attained the goal, but I press for it. I press for the goal. I haven't reached my destination, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop pursuing that destination. And I can't ever lay hold of that destination. I can't ever lay hold of that prize if I don't forget what lies behind and press on towards what lies ahead. He says those who are mature will think this way. Those of us who are mature will have this mind in you. Not a defeatist mentality. Paul preaches an optimist mentality. He says, no, I, I may not be perfect today, but through Christ, I can be better tomorrow than I was today. And I can be better the next day than I am going to be tomorrow. You know, when it comes to a defeatist mentality, I, I'm, so God, I, I'm so glad God didn't have a defeatist mentality toward us. Have you thought about that? What if God had the same defeatist mentality that we have in our lives? What if God had had a conversation with, with the Son and said, Listen, there's no way that this world that I've created is going to obey you. There's no way they're going to believe that you're the Son of God. There's, there's no way that they're going to submit to you and what you're teaching them. There's no way in the world that they're ever going to follow you. So why are we even trying this thing? 
There's no way that, 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 that they're going to be followers of yours, so let's just not even try it in the first place. I'm so glad God didn't have that defeatist mentality towards us, but I, I'm really glad he didn't have it towards me. Because there's a lot of times where he could have given up on me without even trying. And I'm so glad he doesn't. Defeatism is one of the greatest hindrances to the continuation of the restoration. The second thing we're going to talk about tonight is consumerism. Consumerism. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. We've read it. We'll say it again. Paul says he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The last hindrance that we're going to talk about, I'm sure there are more. The last thing that, that stagnates the restoration movement and keeps it from continuing today, I believe, is consumerism. Again, I didn't make this one up. This means the promotion of a consumer's interests. Take note of whose interests we're talking about. It's, it's about the consumer. It's the consumer mindset. And I think we understand this mindset because every one of us are consumers in some way or another. Some of us consume online. Some of us consume in-store. Some of us consume food. Some of us, every one of us consume something. Our, our cars consume gas. We, we, we understand what the idea of, of consumerism is. But the temptation with consumerism is to look at this verse in Ephesians chapter 5 and say, why would I restore the church to the way God intended it for it to be if I can make the church what I want it to look like? Why would I restore the church to what God intended for the church to be, if, if, if I can just make it what I want it to look like. If I can make the church sound like, look like, feel like, whatever I want it to feel like and look like and sound like, then why wouldn't I do that? Why would I go through all the trouble of, of studying the pattern theology that we talked about of, of the commands and the examples and the implications of Scripture? Why would I do all that if I can just make the church in my own image? in the image I want it to be. When the church is more about what I want. When we start to say to ourselves, I, I know that says that, but come on. I mean, have you seen what this other church is doing down the road? Have you, ha, have you heard about this ministry down the road? Have you heard about this ministry that you know, I know that's against what that says, but look at how many people they're attracting. Look at how many people are coming in the doors and, and how many people are responding to this. And, and maybe we, we need to try that because they're not responding to, to this. And, and maybe they need to, we need to change some things so that they'll start responding to us in the same way. We start to look at how successful certain ministries are and we start to look at our numbers and we start to look at numbers and we start to say to ourselves well numbers never lie right <laughs> numbers lie all the time especially when it comes to our faith 
When it comes to faith, the phrase, numbers never lie, almost could not be further from the truth. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, what does he say? Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by in it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way to which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And so we look at the, the, the congregations around us. Again, here comes the comparison game. And, and, and we start to compare ourselves to other congregations. And we see that there's this mega church that has all of these different ministries and all of these different things. And, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they're a little bit left than what this says. But, I mean, hey, look at the numbers. Look at, at, at the droves of people and the satellite congregations and, and all the different things going on. When you look at the vast scope of quote-unquote Christianity, the numbers would tell you that the community churches are the way to go. The numbers would tell you that, that the churches who commit more emphasis to spirit than to truth that's the way to go. The numbers would, would try to convince you that the churches who go all out with theatrics in a detriment to theology, that's the way to go. That's the best approach. But Jesus would say, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go in by it. Narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be who find it. You know, I'd rather be in a congregation any day of the week. I'd rather be in a congregation that can barely afford to keep the lights on. But they were worshiping in spirit and in truth than to be in a megachurch corporation that bowed to the altar of consumerism. A couple years ago, I did a lesson on consumerism here at Buford. It was in part of the Roundtable series. It was, it was a series entitled Reframe, and, and we were going try to try to, try to reframe some of the ways that we think about some of the very core aspects of our faith and, and core aspects of who we are, and we're, we're trying to reframe our minds to think about certain things in different ways than probably we maybe had before, maybe some things that we've always taken for granted. And, in that lesson, I talked about consumerism. I talked about the church. And I asked this question. I said, are we consumers or are we contributors? And what, what, what mindset, what, what mentality do we have towards the church? Are we looking out about what the church can offer us or what we can offer the church. And in that lesson, I, I, I talked about this consumer mindset that some people have with the church. And this consumer mindset tells us that we, we want things done a certain way. If it were up to me, I, I would have it done this way. And so obviously, something needs to be done about that thing. 
Because I feel that way about it. I don't care what God's Word says about it. I don't care what the elders say about it. I don't care what my mama says about it. I want it done this way. That's a consumer attitude. What do we say about the customer? The consumer? What's that? That's right. Always right. The customer, the consumer is always right. So let's change it. Let's get this thing changed the way I want it to look like. It doesn't matter how God would have me do it. It doesn't matter what the pattern tells me to do. And you know what? If you're not willing to change the way I see it, I'll pack up my family. We'll go down the road to the church that will. We'll go down the road to the church that is willing to do things the way we want to do it. Because I have control because I'm a consumer. You know what? Does that sound like the church that Christ died for? I don't think so. You think he died? You think he died for us to have that mentality? Do you think Christ is happy when we have this attitude that church is about us? That worship is about us. Brethren, instead of making church all about us, what if we made ourselves all about the church? Not our church, not his church or, or her church, but Christ's church. That's what we read in the New Testament. You know, I, I, I drove up here, I drive up here every single day almost, and I, I've never seen my name on that sign. Because it's not my church. It's not my church. You know what? I've never seen your name on that sign. I've never seen your name on that sign, and I've never seen any of y'all's name on that sign because it's not our church. It's not our church because our name, our name wasn't above the cross. Our name wasn't on that sign that was above the cross. That sign said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's why it's his church. Not your church. Not my church. It's Christ's church. The Bible tells us this multiple times, uh, all the time, but we have to understand, we have to believe that because Jesus is King... Because He is the Lord of lords, because He is my Savior, and because He is my Redeemer, and because He is everything to me. He is head of the church. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, what does Jesus say? He's, he's talking to Peter and He says, I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it whose church yours ours hers he says my church so many of us are busy building our own church that we forget we're supposed to be a part of his that's what consumerism is all about building your own church apart from his. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. 
Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Who's the head of the church? You, me, Christ. He is the head of the body, and he has preeminence. But yet so many of us are trying to be the head, trying to be the one in charge, trying to make things the way we want them to be, that we have forgotten that our place is neck down. We are the body, not the head. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Paul says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God the Father has placed Christ as the head. To what? To some things, to a few things, to many things, to things that are, that are convenient for him to be head of? No. He has put him as head over all things to the church. So instead of picking and choosing when it is convenient to have Christ as the head, why don't we just allow him to be head all the time? Why don't we just allow Christ and what he says in the New Testament to be head over all of our decision making? It is Christ, after all, who is able to fill all in all, Ephesians 1 says. Who is able to fill all in all. That's Jesus, not you, not me, not any of us. Consumerism is one of the greatest obstacles to the continuing of the restoration. Consumerism is one of the greatest things that stagnate the movement. Tonight, whether you struggle with defeatism or consumerism, the result is the same. The same way last time we were together, the, the result of tradition and comparison was what? It was hypocrisy. Christ called both groups hypocrisy. Tonight we have a unifying message with both of these. Whether you are consumed with this defeatist attitude or this consumerist attitude, the result is the same. When you look at tradition and comparison, it was hypocrisy, but when you look at defeatism and consumerism, it's apathy. Because when we give ourselves over to a defeatist mindset, it's going to inevitably lead to what? Apathy. We're going to start to convince ourselves there's no way we can be perfect, so why try in the first place? We're going to start telling ourselves it's okay to not care because we aren't cut out for this in the first place. We're going to start justifying our apathy because that's what defeatism does. And it's the same with consumerism. When we give ourselves over to consumerist mindsets about the church, it's inevitably going to lead to apathy. Because we're going to convince ourselves that the church is about me. Worship is about me. Ministries are about me. Me, me, me. And therefore, anything I don't want, I don't care about. And I won't submit to when we give ourselves over to these mindsets, it's, it's, it's going to tell ourselves that, that it's okay not to care about what God's Word says about certain things. Because all that matters is what I want. Brethren, apathy could not be more diametrically opposed to Christianity. 
I've never met an apathetic Christian. Someone says, I see them all the time. There's a lot of apathetic Christians. Well, guess what? There is no apathetic Christian because you can't be a Christian and be apathetic. There is no apathetic Christian because you can't be a Christian and be apathetic. An apathetic Christian is not a thing. They don't go together. Tonight, if we give way to tradition or, com or comparison, we're bound for hypocrisy. If we give way to defeatism or consumerism, we're bound to apathy. The truth is, it doesn't take all four of these, though, to stagnate the movement. It doesn't take all four of these things to keep the restoration from continuing. Unfortunately, all it takes is one. Let me show you what I mean. Let's say a church has absolutely no problem with comparison, with defeatism, or with consumerism. But let's say they are outrageously consumed with tradition. You think the restoration is going to continue? Well, no, because that's how we've always done things. If you have any one of these things, the restoration will not continue. If a congregation has the right attitude about tradition and defeatism and consumerism, but, but they are consumed with comparison, therefore the status quo will always be the status quo and the restoration will never continue. Brethren, for the restoration to continue, for the movement to continue through you and me, we have got to be a congregation that is unbeholden to tradition, unsatisfied with comparison, unafraid to combat defeatism, and unwilling to bow to the altar of consumerism. Because Jesus, the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to say that he might present her to himself, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Brethren, this is what Christ demands. This is what Christ deserves. This is what he died for. This is what he intends for us to be. It never ceases to amaze me when you look at those homeowners' faces when they first see that house, right? They first see that house we were talking about earlier that's been restored and, and, and renovated. And it's now, it's now this glorious abode that shall be lived in for generations, right? How much more amazing will it be to look at our master's face? When we arrive in heaven one day knowing that we did everything possible to make this verse a reality. That I did everything possible to restore the church that you intended for us to be. Our study the past two quarters has taken us through history, through our Bibles, and into our lives today. And next week it concludes. But what is left to be restored? What part of our faith and practices need to be examined again and restored back to the ancient order? What is still to be continued by you and me today? That is to be continued. Quick word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for this night that you've given us to open up your word. We pray that we can take it into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives. That we can stray away from tradition and comparison and defeatism and consumerism and, and walk towards 
our faith in you and in your son. Forgive us when we come up short. In Jesus' name we pray.